That's a good one. Turn in your Bibles to Psalms, Psalm 5. I'll be reading all of Psalm 5. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord again, asking for His help in understanding this text. Our gracious God, to you we cry. We ask that you would answer our plea for understanding. We know that if there is to be any enlightenment of the eyes, it must come from your light, O Lord. So for this we pray, in Christ's name, the light of the world. Amen. Hear now the word of God, Psalm 5. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down to your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because the abundance of their transgressions cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God have blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. You may be seated. This psalm has a special meaning to me. It was the very first text that I ever preached from many moons ago. And you could say that I was still suffering from a bit of cage-stage Calvinism. For those of you who don't know what that is, it means it's that period of time. It's indefinite. We don't know how long it will last. But it's for those who have been taught the doctrines of grace for the first time and have accepted these doctrines and are really excited about them, really excited about the wrath of God for some weird reason. And they, that's pretty much all they can talk about, is wrath of God and uh, holiness of God and the doctrines of grace and, and all these things. And I think in my, when I first preached this, or I guess in this case it would have been an exhortation, not preaching, since I wasn't an ordained minister at the time, It was my goal to recover a view of the holiness of God, a view of the wrath of God. I think I even named that message the scary and comforting wrath of God. And it's good to recover this. And R.C. Sproul, if you know anything about his ministry, it was highlighting the holiness of the Lord, 
And we could do with a lot more of that highlighting. But sometimes I think in my excitement for these, these truths, I gave a little more heat than light. And you know, people were not the better for it, I imagine. But verses 5 and 6 do point to God's hatred, his abhorrence even. Not only for the sin, but the sinner. And I had thought that it was my mission to proclaim to everyone God's opposition to sinners. Now, rest assured, I will not subject you to that sermon from many moons ago. I did open it up in the Word document and then immediately closed it, realizing that was not something anyone needed to hear again. But this psalm has Psalms 3 and 4 in the background, if you've been with us. You know the context of Psalm 3, that David has fled Jerusalem because of his son, his dear son Absalom. And this separation from God, from the house of God, makes sense if he has been forced out of Jerusalem by his son. And here we have another morning psalm. We see that in verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. You remember Psalm 3 was a morning psalm. Psalm 4 was an evening psalm. Psalm 5 is a morning psalm. And if you were to read Psalm 6, you'd see that it's an evening psalm. We'll get to that next year. So we have in just these four psalms, morning and evening, morning and evening, constant cries from David for the Lord to hear him, for the Lord to rescue him from the hands of his enemies. And David wrote this psalm to encourage the godly to retain the joy of God as refuge in their trials. Confident in the Lord of righteousness, we cry out to the Lord of refuge. In this psalm, we read over and again of David's neediness. He appears to have an endless list of of desires, of wants. But let it be said that David is not afraid to come across as vulnerable. He's not afraid to come across as needy, to share his needs with the Lord who hears his plea. And in order to have his spiritual needs, his holy desires met, he must first be heard. He must first then cry out to the Lord. This dependence on the Lord expresses itself through these constant cries David doesn't hold back his words. He doesn't hold back his words thinking that the Lord is just too busy to hear his words. Well, the Lord has some other people, other saints that he has to attend to. David doesn't buy into that lie. The Lord is omniscient. The Lord is omnipresent. He hears all. He is everywhere. So David accepts that, and he gives his words to the Lord. Prayer is is speaking words to God. God has spoken to us through his word, and then in prayer we speak to him. But there are more than words here. There are groans. David doesn't hold back his groans. This word is sometimes translated meditation. The word has in mind often that that quiet, but out loud muttering of what is in the heart. Sometimes you, you can't contain the groans inside. They just have to come out. And he has this cry. He doesn't hold back his cry. This word specifically is a cry for help. It's an urgent plea for immediate deliverance. 
We see Job using this in Job 30, verse 24. If you are in a heap of ruins, a ditch, will you not then cry for help? If you're stuck in a ditch, you cry. Cry out, somebody help me. Can anyone hear me? I need rescue right now. He doesn't hold back his prayer. It's the language of intercessory prayer. He is interceding for himself, but also for all his men. If Absalom and his men are coming at David and his men, then David is praying for himself and for all those that are on his side. But why is David crying out so intensely, so ceaselessly? Because again, the context fits best when understood with the events surrounding Absalom. And if you read the account with David and Absalom, and you compare that to the middle of Psalm 5, you see that these verses point to that time of of plotting dark deeds before forcing David out to flee Jerusalem. And in verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Or better translated, I direct my prayer to you and watch. After expending all of his vocal and soulish energy in prayer to God, David watches. David waits on the Lord. This is true faith in his king, in his God. He's saying, in essence, I know, Lord, that you will answer me in the morning. I know it. How this deliverance is going to look? When this deliverance will be achieved? I don't know. That you will rescue me? That I know for sure. He is confident of a sure rescue. He is confident of an eventual return to Jerusalem, even before it all happens, even when it seems like that's an impossibility. How is he going to get out of this one? Dear ones, let's not take for granted that God has granted us a hearing in his presence through Jesus. That is a grace from God. Jesus, this Son of God, truly God, truly man who came to earth to live that perfect life that you could not and to die the death that you deserve. With that death has passed through the heavens, Paul says. It's passed through the heavens and now has opened. He's given us free access, full access to the throne room of God. And that took his life. Do not take for granted that you have a hearing, that you have the Lord's listening ear. You can, whenever you want, say, O Lord, you hear my voice. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Give attention to the sound of my cry. You can do that anytime. You can pray without ceasing because Christ gave you his life. Do not waste such grace, by refusing to cry out to the Lord. Do not think yourself too manly to groan. Can you get more manly than slaying Goliath, than foreskinning Philistines by the hundreds, by ruling over a whole kingdom of God's people? You can't get more manly than that, can you? Yet this manly man David groaned before his God, before his king, He was not above that. He wasn't above crying out. He wasn't above having tears be his food day and night. Never think that 
real men don't cry. David was a real man, and he was crying. Can you get more manly than the son of David, who slayed legions of demons, even the devil himself, by becoming the circumcision for our salvation and ruling heaven and earth? Yet this manly man, Jesus, cried out, prayed, even groaned before his God and Father. If you examine your prayers, can you ever put your prayers in the category of cries, in the category of groans? On August 12th, Friday, I began my journey from Pittsburgh to Fayetteville. I left at 12.30, was making really good time, had a quick stop to get gas, and five hours in, I'm, I'm singing my heart out to some Spanish music, threw in one of those Spanish CDs that I once burned years ago, like, this is a good time. I'm checking out my GPS, Three hours and 38 minutes. I'm like, I'm going to get home by 8.30. Kids are going to be up. I'm going to embrace them. This is going to be awesome. Going through the North Carolina-Virginia line, my GPS stops working. I go through the tunnel. Okay, that happens. It'll restore itself. And I got seven miles to... Um, it has seven miles, really, to, uh, to restore itself before... I have to make the next turn, which I don't know what turn that'll be. It's just seven miles. Got that much, have that much time. And the phone remained frozen, even out of the tunnel. What's going on here? Tap the phone, nothing. Well, okay, I'll just have to manually stop the phone and just restart it. So I try all those buttons that you do to manually stop the phone. Nothing. It's just frozen. Three hours and 38 minutes left of the ride. Like, okay. This, there's, I had the GPS up there for a reason. Because I don't know how to get from Virginia to Fayetteville on my own. I need this GPS. And it was not coming back on. It was then that I turned the volume down. Spanish music was no more. And cries from within came out. Lord, you know I don't know how to get home. I need to get home. I know a general area. But I don't know all the particulars. I'm passing through a lot of different areas. I don't know how to get home. Lord, will you please restore this, this GPS for me? And that was rough. The Lord used that as a time for me to be vulnerable, a time for me to express my own neediness. I saw immediately that I was directionless and could not get myself home and needed someone to help me. A miracle. Please, Lord, restart that phone. David has 
this vulnerability on full display. He knows his neediness. He knows that enemies are hounding him, and he knows that he cannot extricate himself out of this situation. Dear ones, consider your own vulnerability, your own misery, your own sins, your own weaknesses. It takes something small like a GPS not to work to realize that we are dependent upon someone or something and we need help. How much more than ought it to be that we see our sin, we see our suffering, and we realize how needy we really are, how vulnerable, how open to being wounded we frail creatures really are. As you acknowledge your neediness, cry out to the Lord for help. He will show you your neediness every single day. Your neediness for his wisdom on how to parent, how to be a good co-worker, how to be a good husband or wife, how to be a good soldier. And you must resist the temptation for instant gratification to your groans. Our luxurious comforts, our Amazonian ways, our days of instant downloads, all tell us not to wait. All tell us you get what you want and you get it now. But God is not an app on our phone through which we get immediate results. Yes, we have immediate access to him. We always have immediate access to the Father. But we don't always have the answers that we long for at the time that we long for them. God is often telling us, yeah, I'm not going to wait on you. You will wait for me, actually. That's how it's going to work. I'm not your servant. You will get to grow by waiting for me. And though David is confident that he will be heard, he still submits to God's timing. He recognizes that he is not on the throne. He recognizes that ultimately it is his king, his God, to whom he cries. He is on the throne. And so he submits to his king's timing. And sometimes the Lord withholds answers from us. Sometimes he withholds even the the sense of his presence from us. And for any number of reasons, it might be to cause reliance on him. Just think back at Israel in the wilderness. And there, the the giving of the bread, the manna that came down from heaven. They were not to collect more than a single day's worth. Why? To show them that every single day they depended upon God. Sometimes the Lord withholds his answers, his presence from us, that we might just enjoy him, that we might learn just to enjoy him and his presence, to crave for that presence, and not all of the great spiritual blessings that come from his fatherly hand. Sometimes we we seek God as if he is that vending machine, as if he is that that great uh, grandfather who is just going to give us all kinds of things. 
And we come to him for all kinds of blessings. And he has lavished upon us his blessings. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies is ours. What a joy it is to have all of these blessings. But we have to remember that it is a person who is giving us these things. You don't get married so that you can have all of the blessings in that marriage relationship, though you do have blessings. You do have great joys in that relationship, but you, you cherish that relationship for what it is. Just yesterday, we're talking about, in men's Bible study, talking about friendship, and it is a relationship that is cherished for its own sake. You cherish the relationship with the Lord for its own sake because He is your God. He is your King. He is your Redeemer. And not simply for the things that He gives you. Sometimes the Lord will withhold his presence, his answers from you that you will learn just to enjoy him. Sometimes he'll withhold these from you that you might grow in patience. We need to learn to be more like Jesus. We need to learn to be patient, to be long-suffering. And one way that the Lord teaches us that is by not giving us what we want when we want it. And sometimes even by denying our wants, if they don't align with his will. Another reason he would withdraw his presence or withdraw his answers from us is to uh, help us to join with the sufferings of Jesus, whose father delayed his response. The son cried out to the father, and the son was met with a no, not yet. In my own case, when I cried out to the Lord for my phone to unfreeze, for my GPS to work, I was met with the answer of no. Not to say that I heard some audible, no, Michael, you will not have your GPS work. Not that. But clearly, as God was unfolding history before me, as I'm on the road, the answer was no. It's not going to work. No became my reality, as difficult as it was. Since the trial was still there before me, I still had to get home. In verse 8, he says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. This second urgent desire of David is, is divine leading, is wise guidance. In David's journey homeward, his confidence in the Lord's listening ear rests not in himself, but in the God who hates evil. You know the saying that America runs on Duncan? Well, that's true. The wicked run on wickedness, and the righteous run on righteousness. That's what fuels the wicked, more wickedness. That's what fuels the righteous, it's more righteousness. The perfectly righteous, holy, and pure God does not, indeed cannot, delight in evil. As it is natural man's delight to swim in his own filth and delight in it, it's God's natural delight to be in the good. In fact, to, to be the good. As a rooster can't stop a crowing, God can't stop abhorring evil, murder, lies, boasts. It is in his nature to abominate, to abhor, to hate all that is evil, all that is wicked. It's not a surprise to us, but what if he said that David was no American? And Americans tend to think rather highly of themselves, don't they? I should know I am one. 
Now, of course, all of humanity thinks rather highly of himself. It's pride, trying to dethrone God and exalt himself. One of the lies of American Christianity is that God's holiness stops at the sin, as if God somehow separates the sin from the one sinning. And, of course, you hear this, God hates a sin, but loves the sinner. It's hard to square with Psalm 5. No translation, gymnastics will dazzle, will distract our minds from God's very clear word that he hates all evildoers. Not just the evil done, but those who do the evil. We have to remember that evil is not a thing in itself. It is what evil hearts do. And evil hearts belong to people. Hearts belong to people. It's people who are doing the evil. It's people who are doing the wickedness. People who are sinning. Now, if the sinful man weren't offended enough by David's words, you hate all evildoers, David one-ups himself, the Lord abhors. And we, we use the word hate rather regularly, but it takes some extra attention to say abhor, doesn't it? Or to say abominate. Um, those are like next level hatred. And that's what he says here. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Not just the bloodthirst, not just the deceit, but the man who is murderous, the man whose lips pour forth speech that is hostile to the pure word. Not just the wickedness, but the wicked doer. And David singles out all of those workers of iniquity. That is to say, his focus is on those who at present commit wrongdoing. His focus is not all of those who have ever been guilty of wrongdoing, which would be everyone, except for Christ. No, David does make a distinction between the wicked and the righteous. He's not saying that he, as righteous, is perfect. But there is a distinction between those who are uh, of the world, and those who are of Christ. Nevertheless, we must see that such is the life of all those who are in Adam. All those who have not been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the sun. What can be said in verse 5 and in verse 6 can be said of anyone who is not in Christ, because no one, or everyone who is outside of Christ, does only evil continually. In fact, Paul uses part of Psalm 5 as part of his support for this universal condemnation, that all the world is guilty. If you're a Jew, you're guilty. If you're a Gentile, you're guilty. You have taken the truth of God, and you've suppressed it in unrighteousness. You've exchanged it for a lie, and you've exalted yourself. You've decided to worship the creature rather than the creator. That's everyone in Adam, until or unless the new, better Adam rescues you. That's all. And so we can say that for those who are in Adam, God hates, God abhors, No one is righteous. But what about one? 
No, not one, Paul says. The whole world in Adam is at enmity with God. But this is where grace is so astounding, that God, God alone can both hate the sinner and so love us that he gave his only begotten son. God did not save us when we were brought to a state of neutrality. He saved us while we were still enemies. He took enemies. He took those that he hated and those that hated him. And he says, this is going to be a different relationship. It's no longer going to be one of enmity, but one of friendship, one of covenant love, one of steadfast love, abundance of love. And that was because of God. Not because of what the enemy was doing. The enemy was spewing out hatred. We were spewing out vitriol before God, our creator. This son of God, whose path was made straight by John the Baptist to lead us in righteousness. Such marvelous grace that we would do well to praise him for every single day. And having graciously run us off the road of wickedness, he has now course-corrected our hearts. He is driving us. And he is training us in righteousness. He's leading us in righteousness. And so we pray, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. We pray this knowing that the Lord cannot do otherwise. He can never lead you into wickedness. He will lead you to righteousness. What a prayer the Lord loves to answer. And he answers that according to his steadfast love. Will you pray that prayer? Lead me, O Lord, in righteousness. Will you pray that prayer? You must be careful what you pray for, because you just might get it. If you want to be led in righteousness, that means doing away with wickedness. That means dealing with sin. So be careful what you pray for. But pray that prayer, because the saints of God, those who are righteous want to grow in righteousness. Those who have been sanctified, those who have been set apart, strive after that holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Will you cry out with groans of weakness and sinful flesh, lamenting your sin? Will you repent even of your own repentance? Will you see your sin with the eyes of your Savior? See its abominable odiousness, its abhorrence. Will you sorrow over your sin? And will you hate yourself because of your sin? That's a start. That's the way of life. That's the way of new covenant living, as Ezekiel tells us. And when the Lord leads you in his righteousness, what will you do? Will you submit to his leading? Will you be like Balaam's donkey, who stubbornly refused his leading her to her death? Say, no, there's an angel right there. I am not going over there. I am running off here. I will not be killed by this judgment, this angel of judgment. Balaam was leading her to the wrong, in the wrong direction. Or will you be like stubborn Israel, who used all of his divine allowance to spend on his passions? Let us pray, lead us, O Lord, in your righteousness, and then go wherever his word directs us. Yes, the removal of the flesh will hurt. We love our sinful comforts, and to be denied them is painful but you will be the better for it. You will be the more righteous for it. 
Verse 7, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. This third humble request from David shows us where he wants to be led. He wants to be led to the temple. As David prayed with confidence that the Lord would hear him, he now by faith affirmed that he will be entering the house of the Lord. Again, when he will and how he will are unknown, perhaps even impossible in his mind to conceive how it's going to work out, all for the better. But that he will is certain. That he will enter the house of the Lord is a fact. Now we recall that in David's day, there was no physical temple. That was to be built by Solomon. But the tabernacle, along with the altars and the Ark of the Covenant, can rightly be understood as the temple. So David is essentially saying, house me, O Lord. May I be in your temple. How can he do this and know that he will enter God's house? It is certainly not through David's own righteousness. It is not because David loves the Lord completely. His answer here is, through the abundance of your steadfast love, O Lord. I will enter your house because of you, not because of me. We connect the dots here in David's mind. If we look at verse 4, evil will not dwell with God. And he says in verse 10, that because of the abundance of their transgressions, the wicked will be cast out. The wicked will not be with the Lord. The Lord cannot dwell with the unrighteous. The wicked will be cast out into the lake of fire. He says, but I am led in God's righteousness, and so I will dwell with God because of the abundance of his love, because of what he has done. Does David's cry resonate with your heart? This cry to be in the presence of God, to be in the temple of the Lord. Even more than that, is your heart aligned with your Savior's heart, with Christ, whose zeal for the house of God consumed him? Can it be said of you that you have a zeal for the house of the Lord, a godly, fiery piety for the house of the Lord? And when I was struggling to get home, I kept saying, eventually out loud, Lord, you know I need to get home. I, I, just, I just want to get home. Lead me. Lead me, Lord. If not through this restored GPS, then through this physical map, this atlas that good old Vern Reeves gave me four years ago, and I put it in the glove compartment and never looked at. So here it is. How do I get from here down here? I don't know. The general direction. The night is, is wearing on. It's getting darker and darker. And now I'm getting a little more anxious. I get a little lost. Went out some highway. I don't, I don't think it was the right one. But I kept saying, and it, was, it, sounded, like, it sounded like a whimper. It's like, Lord, I just want to get home. Please just leave me home. I longed to be home. I longed to tell my wife that I was okay. I longed to embrace my beloved. I longed to see the smiling faces of my children who had been 
anxiously awaiting my arrival for two weeks. For David, God used his own enemies to draw David into his house. He used his enemies to cause that longing to be with the Lord. Would David long to be in the house of God if he were away from the house of God? So the Lord used this trial to provoke that desire to be with the Lord. He says, lead me, Lord, in your righteousness. I want to get back. I want to get back to Jerusalem. I want to get back to your people. I want to get back to you where the sacrifices are offered, where I can praise you in the congregation, the assembly of the righteous. That's my longing. And in my case, God used this trial to make me long to be where my family was. Do we so long to be in the house of the Lord that our hearts ache when our bodies prevent us because of our sickness? At the start of COVID, we, we have to ask ourselves, did, did, we, did we yearn for, the, for the, the doors to reopen? Or did we sigh a big sigh of relief? Talk to our shut-ins. Hear from them how they crave the presence of the Lord. Call them up. Talk to them. Sit with them. They will tell you they want to be here with you. They don't want to be shut in. They don't like that they can't come into the presence of God corporately and hear his word and, and eat his meal. Or talk to those who in God's providence were hindered from regularly attending for a while and how they've, they've cherished the presence of God. And pray that their earnestness will rub off on you. Did the enemies of our hearts make us yearn for the blessed presence of God all the more? Do the trials that God sends us lead us to long to be in his house? On Mondays, do we say, I just can't wait to get back in the house of the Lord. I just can't wait to worship my King, my God, my Jesus. I can't wait to be with my brothers and sisters who love me and who love my God and my King. On Saturday evening, do our spirits have all that excitement of a Christmas Eve? Now I'm pushing some buttons. You know that excitement. Tomorrow is Christmas morning. What's going to happen? It'll be a great time with friends and family and presents. Perhaps to say, no. Why? Why should it? Why should my spirit have that kind of excitement that, is, that I have for Christmas Eve? Why should I have that excitement for the Lord's Day? I mean, it comes every single week, after all. Christmas comes only once a year. Why would I be so excited and long for it? Verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Here's your answer. Joy. That's why your hearts ought to be more excited. You and I are far too easily pleased. Dear ones, what is a Christmas morning in all of its glory? Being surrounded by family and friends and, yes, some presents. What is that compared to every Lord's Day? I'm not dissing Christmas, okay? Christmas time is, is a delight. And when done rightly, 
Oh, it's, it's a joy. But Christmas morning is no match for Lord's Day. Our house is no match for the house of the Lord. Our family and friends are no match for Christian siblings. This is where we ought to be. This is why the session has increased the frequency of the Lord's Day evening services. It's not to burden you. It's not to just give you one more thing that you can come to to put on your calendar. It's to give you more joy, dear ones. We are workers for your joy, and we want to increase your joy. We want you to ever sing for joy. And we know that as you think about Christ, as you sing songs to Jesus, as you hear about what he has done, your spirits will increase in joy. The finishing touch of the psalm is not so much a request as it is an expectation. All who are led in the Lord's righteousness to the Lord's house will ever sing for joy. By this word, David is telling us that he cannot contain his joy. He just must shout his praise. To be away from the Lord and then to be led by the Lord back into his presence, there's only one Right response of both body and soul. It is raptured delight. It is radical joy. It is intense, godly feeling. It's pure worship. Dear ones, expect good to flow from God's presence. Expect good things to come out of here. As I was making my way home, I eventually found where I needed to be. It wasn't the right way the whole time, but it eventually got on the 2487, and I knew from there how to get home. And I knew I was only about 18 minutes away, and I was excited. And I pull into the driveway, open the door, and then in come, just barreling down the hall, my wife, with tears down her face. And then my two daughters come and just wrap their arms around me. Where were you? I was calling you. I texted you. I called four police stations. My phone was, the GPS was pinged in Virginia, and I hadn't hadn't moved in hours. So my wife thought maybe I had gotten an accident. She called various states' uh, police stations. And I was met with that joyful embrace, that joyful reunion back in the presence of my beloved, back home. In a similar but exponentially superior way, we can expect eternal goodness to flow from God's Spirit. Expect to be taught God's truth. Expect to be led in his righteousness. Expect to be shown the path of life. Expect to see faithfulness in the house of God. Follow your Savior who craved the presence of the Father. Because in the presence of God are pleasures forevermore. Let us ever sing for joy. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do long for your presence. We do not long for it as we ought to, but we are thankful that you do lead us in your righteousness. 
We do thank you that you have called us to worship you. We pray that we would do that with, with greater faithfulness. We thank you for this word. We thank you for this psalm in which we see your hatred for sin, but your love for all those who are in Christ. Oh, Lord, help us to ever sing for joy. Amen.